I love so much when I'm out and about in my community and I see someone and they're like, oh yeah, you taught my Abbey course or, hey, I want to take that swift water course. You know, I'm really getting into the river or, hey, can we set up a private session to do this climbing class? It just brings me a lot of satisfaction. It also provides me with the livelihood and... This is the Seasonals Podcast, a show where we talk to people living the Overall, it makes me happy. In-depth look at the decision points they've encountered along the way. here with Dave Bumgarner today. How are we doing, Dave? Doing great. How are you doing, Joey? I'm doing well. Where uh, where in the world are you today? I'm in a little mountain town in Colorado called Crested Butte. Nice. I've heard of Crested Butte. I haven't been there yet. Yeah, well, it's a good place. Really good place for the outdoors. A lot of good backcountry skiing, which is what I do majority throughout the winter here. Yeah, so you were out there today uh, doing some guiding. Tell me about your different seasons throughout a normal, so non-COVID year uh, between the winter and summer, and you know maybe maybe touch on what you do in between those two as well. Yeah, so we'll start out with the winter. I start my winter here in Crest Butte. Uh, we do a lot of avalanche education courses and a lot of ski guiding, a little bit of ice climbing. We also have a cat ski operation that I work at and ski guide there. Uh, Last winter, I did my first season working in Japan and I heli guided uh, and backcountry ski guided out there for about five weeks and then came back. And that's something if the world opens back up, I'll probably go back out to Japan for a month or two of the winter. And then... You know, we finish up ski guiding around here. Usually we get some good spring mountaineering skiing in throughout April and then spring comes and that's when I start doing a lot of whitewater courses and I teach ACA swift water rescue courses, ACA kayak instructor courses, and then start ramping up for the summer season, which I always say I guide everything but fishing. So I do a lot of whitewater stuff, mountain biking, rock climbing, a little bit of alpine climbing, some hiking, backpacking trips too. Okay. Yeah. So this is a, this is a full menu here for the yeah. year. <laughs> sort of go through the, the avalanche uh, class for me. Yeah. I mean, I would say that's the largest growing part of the ski industry right now is backcountry skiing and riding. And with that is the aspects of learning how to safely travel with an avalanche terrain. And, you know, when you go by your backcountry setup, you know, the salesperson is probably going to recommend, hey, you should probably take an avalanche education course, right? And then we have our recreational avalanche classes and we do level one courses, standalone rescue courses, and avalanche uh, level two courses. So starting out, first thing we help people do is, is get on their touring setup and kind of learn those fundamentals of skinning and getting out in the backcountry uh, before they even just jump into the level one course. So that they're, because there's a lot of snow science and learning what avalanche terrain is and introduction to rescue we have a wide variety of curriculum in a three-day avenue one course recommend to people that it shouldn't be the first time you're getting on your backcountry setup you should go to some areas even if it's just skinning up at the ski area and get some of those skills down so that you're not in survival mode in your avenue one course this year uh, one of the bigger things that's happened just because of 
the limited amount of people going to ski areas, I'd say we've had the largest jump of backcountry users. So uh, all the avalanche educators, we've been super busy. I'm about to teach my 12th course this week and then the next and then 13th course. And for me, that's a lot. I usually teach around seven or eight Abbey courses throughout the winter, but there's been such a demand. Half the courses I've taught this year have been private courses that people have put together with their groups wanting uh, that structured education. The people taking the class, do you take them out for a few days or is this something that you can kind of do it in the day, go back to town and the next day, go out again, come back to town? The structure of the avalanche education courses is a, three day, 24 hours for a level one. And then, uh, then before you take a level two, uh, we require you to take an eight hour one day rescue course, which builds on the initial skills that you've learned in a level one. And, and then what we usually recommend after you've had a year of backcountry experience after your level one course, that's when it's appropriate for you to take uh, a level two course, you know, and this is also, you know, recreational courses that, you know, no one's required to take these courses to go on the back country. It's just setting yourself up for success with more education. So I've had people that have back country skied for years and then they're realizing, Hey, I'm missing a component in here. And they come back and take a level one course. And then I have people that just bought their backcountry gear this year taking a course too. So we get a wide variety of students in these courses. And that probably helps both, both of them learn as well, having people of different levels in there. Definitely. Yeah. What is uh, cat skiing? So cat skiing is, you know, if you've ever been to a ski area, you see the grooming cats that they're the ones that run over the snow and they groom and make the nice groomed runs at a ski area. So what cat skiing is, is that same cat, they've just put a cargo uh, component on the back so that it can take people. So at a ski area, a chairlift takes you up. When you're going heli skiing, a helicopter takes you to the top of the mountain and cat skiing is when a snow cat will take you to the top of the mountain, drop you off, you ski down and then jump back in the snow cat and then it brings you back up. So it's not, uh, so you're off the resort and you, you're not doing the lift, you're using the cat instead. So the cat ski operation that we have here in Crested Butte is its own resort. They've got this whole area uh, that they own some of the land, they lease some of the land from the Forest Service and and we do our own control work there too in that cat ski operation, right? As uh, just like ski patrollers are using explosives uh, to, to, to mitigate avalanche danger, we do the same thing. Uh, our snow safety teams and our guides that are out there uh, doing control work before our participants come out. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not as trafficked as a ski area. So we do require... Uh, our clients at the Katsuki operation to wear beacons because it's more of a backcountry environment. How many days a week do you think you ski? I would say six. I try to uh, get a rest day in each week or, you know, go to yoga and uh, just take care of myself because I realize I'm abusing my body uh, going skiing. But if the snow is really good, I'll skip that rest day and, and go out. And the hard thing I would say is, I really enjoy my work. So it's, it's sometimes hard to say no to work because it's like, well, I was probably going to go skiing anyways. And now I get to go hang out with some cool people and, and show them uh, some really good backcountry skiing or uh, cat skiing or whatever I'm doing. So um, the winter time I, I work a lot and just try to squeeze in some days. But usually when I have a day off, I go skiing again. <laughs> take me through a really good day on the mountain like it can be a work day or you know a day off just kind of go through you know and you get to pick every everything's going right the snow is how you want it describe that you know just just take me through morning to night good day on the mountain and you want me to kind of go through my daily process of what i do yeah right before so 
you know, each day, whether I am uh, working or going personal skiing with some friends, I get up in the morning, uh, make some breakfast, and then I look at the Avalanche Bulletin. And, and a part of looking at that bulletin is I'm also looking at various weather models. I remember when I was a kid, uh, I, my dad and my uncle always looked at the weather all the time. And I was like, is this what old men do? You know, and then I realized when I got into backcountry skiing, like I look at the weather every day. This drives my day of what's going on with the snow. So I'm always looking at the weather. And that's a big thing that we talk about in avalanche education courses is following the weather because it contributes to stability or instability, right? So I get up, I see what's going on and it's not a long process because I do it every day, right? I'm looking at the forecast and a lot of days I can know what's going on because I'm following the weather also. Then if I am going to work, then I'll meet my clients at the trailhead or at the office, just depending what we've set up before, then kind of do our various intros and go through that. And then we go backcountry skiing and go up there and, you know, depending on their ability and their experience on what routes that we have done. And usually I'm talking to clients, uh, usually a couple days before at least depending how much they booked their trip ahead of time and kind of feeling out what their ability is and then trying to pick a pr- terrain that's appropriate for their ability and their fitness and what they want to get out of the day and a big part of that is also you know what are what's the avalanche danger you know, what's forecasted that day and how is the weather contributing to that stability or instability? Um, Is it going to be more unstable later in the day because it's dumping snow or getting really windy or uh, the temperature's warming up and bringing snow to its breaking point? Uh, So then we go out and we usually have a great day and, and go skiing and what we always like to say is make it, you know, the, the best day ever, right? You know, when people are coming for an experience is that we want to provide that positive experience and give them uh, a memory that they'll be psyched on if they're uh, on their vacation or even if they're locals coming out to expand their experience and knowledge in the winter backcountry. Let's say, let's say it's the best day ever. What's the snow like? Best day ever. Uh, I would say what I always say in my uh, Abbey courses, I say heaven or whatever you believe in for me is it snows six inches every day. There's no wind. Temperatures are in the mid twenties. And I mean, it's partly cloudy, so we're getting breaks in the weather, but we're not getting, the snow is not changing too much from solar radiation, right? That's my heaven, right? That's also called a place, a place called Japan, except it does get windy sometimes, but it snows a lot there, right? So having really good snow and not be very windy, having clearing skies throughout the day so we have good visibility and people feeling good and getting out and and I was getting hopefully multiple laps so that they have a sense of feeling accomplished out there and skiing way steep snow and having a little snow hitch in the face is always a good day. It means it's deep out there. And so your guests on this best day ever are awesome. Very cool. Where, where are you taking them? Yeah. So, I mean, as I said before, it depends on their, their ability, but you know, they're, they're exactly as good as you want them to be. Oh, sweet. Then they're really good skiers. We have really good stability. We're going to go ski some steeper lines, get in some shoots and, you know, have need away steep snow and everyone's feeling strong and fit and they're going to get multiple laps in and we're just going to have this awesome day and there's, and the sun comes out and there's no wind and uh, that would be a great day. And then we go meet up after a great ski tour and go drink some adult lemonades. Do you have a particular 
place where you're skiing and then a particular place where you're getting the lemonade? Here in CB, uh, we've got a variety of drainages that we can backcountry ski. So it kind of goes with, you know, what conditions are doing. But some of my greatest days ski guiding, I've had some really strong clients that wanted to ski some bigger objectives. And we had the stability, we had the snow. And I actually just skied with uh, one of these clients yesterday. We skied something else, but he always talks about, he's like, I will never forget that day. The first time that we skied together, him and his buddy came out and we skied this uh, one cooler called the pencil and it's this steeper line and we had great conditions, great stability and skied this amazing lap, great snow went up and skied another lap of this other steep cooler that day. And we got 7,000 vertical that day, meaning we skied up 7,000 feet throughout the day and skied down 7,000 feet. So it was a really big day. They were really strong clients. And after that, they were like, let's go grab some beverages. And one of my favorite places here in Crestview to go to is the Brick Oven Pizzeria. A couple of friends own that, and they've got 30 different beers on tap and uh, just a really good laid back environment. You know, it's where you see all the other backcountry skiers or in the summer mountain bikers. And everybody's just sitting there at the bar, like talking about their great days of like, oh, we skied this line and we did this. And, um, it's just a great atmosphere to be caught up in, uh, after you're stoked on this great day and then having, uh, some laughs and telling stories with the people that you're traveling with. Now we've got the perfect day down. Tell me a little bit about heaven, heli ski guiding in Japan. You know, Japan gets amazing snow. Yeah. When that most years it's just snowing too much sometimes there. And uh, you get a constant refresh, right? You might have a great day and then it dumps snow again. So the hard thing in Japan is to get that great snow, but also have uh, clear enough skies that the helicopter can fly, right? So when I showed up, we got a couple of really good storms and I got out on the heli and just had some, we had a clear enough day right after we got a foot of snow the night before and had good stability. And uh, we had some strong clients and just getting multiple laps in uh, the heli ski operation there. You get a full day heli ski, you get six laps. The heli comes and drops you at the top of the volcano. And then the groups go in their various ways. There's multiple routes to go down and we take our clients down and get them through safely. Uh, there's various hazards that we have to, avoid in Japan that we don't see here in a Colorado snowpack and glide cracks. Uh, so we want to avoid those. Those are like open cracks in the snow that you could fall in. Uh, so we navigate past those and then uh, rip amazing lines down this volcano and then pull up and then load back up in the helicopter and it brings you back to the top. And we do that multiple times and in the middle of the day, we ski to this little pizzeria, which was I always find funny that we're eating pizza in Japan, uh, but that's kind of the way we've set it up. And uh, and then we meet back up, jump back in the heli, fly back up, and get a couple more flights in. And when you're over there, are you uh, working for yourself or a company? I'm working for a company that's based over there, and they have a bunch of different guides from the U S Canada, Australia, we have a bunch of Japanese guides too. Uh, so they're just bringing in certified, uh, ski guides to come work there and, and bring clients out. And we get people from all over the world that want to go experience the Japan, right. And get out there. And, and we also uh, do backcountry skiing and we have a cat ski operation over there too. And then we do some resort guiding because there's lots of gates out of the ski areas in japan so we're bringing people to some of the best snow they've ever skied what's the living situation do they set you up or is it sort of up to you yes yeah, so the company that i work for in japan hokkaido backcountry club uh the the owner owns a couple various houses there uh so uh, they put us up a bunch of the guides and we're all rotating because we're doing trips all over the North Island, kind of 
bunk style and they have like the Japanese style beds and, you know, it's nothing super fancy uh, that we're staying at, but they're, they're nice enough. And we have a really good camaraderie of all the guides that are over there. And then we'll go meet at the office for our morning meeting every day at 5.30 a.m., uh, talk about snow conditions, and then all the guides will go out different places. Some people will be meeting their clients for a backcountry tour. Other people will be meeting their clients for a week-long tour. They're traveling all over the North Island, hitting up resorts and backcountry skiing. The heli crew will head out to the heli and meet their clients there. Another group will head over to the cat ski operation, and that's a little farther away from where our office is, so they usually go out for multiple days. Um, but yeah, they, they provide us housing and we pay a small fee to stay at this housing, but it, it makes it work for us since we're, a lot of the guys are coming from other international locations and we're going there anywhere from a month to three months, uh, to go work the winter season in Japan. What are some things that you need on your resume before you start sending it to a company like that? Well, that one, you know, they're definitely looking for people that have had ski guiding experience and the various certifications that, you know, I, I'm a fully certified ski guide through the American Mountain Guide Association. So I've taken a variety of avalanche education courses, professional courses, and then done uh, the three different ski guide courses and exams, right? So that uh, gets you in. And, and they also hire guides that have been through their first couple courses, but you do get, you definitely have the higher certifications you have, uh, the better they pay you also. And then you also need to have various medical training. Uh, I have my wilderness first responder, which is an 80 hour course dealing with backcountry emergencies and medical procedures. Uh, some people have their EMT uh, but it definitely need at least a, a woofer that to minimum work anything in most outdoor settings nowadays. That's, that's becoming the standard, I would say. And maybe my last winter question, but what is, what is ski mountaineering? So I'll tell you the joke because my buddy Than, who's the executive uh, director of the Avalanche Center here in Crested Butte, he comes out with us a bunch and, and he's a really good skier, but he's not really a guide. He's just passionate about backcountry skiing. And uh, we go out and, and he always asks, Hey, are we ski mountaineering? Right. And we're like, now we're just backcountry skiing and we'll be out on a tour and we're getting in some bigger mountains. And he's like, Hey, are we ski mountaineering yet? And I was like, no, we're still just backcountry skiing. And then we're on a ridge and we're going there and he's a little puckered and then He's a little nervous as we're negotiating some terrain um, to get up higher and we're more exposed. And, and then I'll turn to him and be like, now we're ski mountaineering, <laughs> right? So <laughs> ski mountaineering, I would say is, is when you're getting higher up in the mountains, you're uh, potentially uh, when I teach our ski mountaineering camp, which I've got one coming up in April is we're teaching people how to use their points and what their points are. Are there ice axes? You've got boot crampons. You've got ski crampons. You will break out um, your harness because you might be utilizing ropes, right? So all of these extra tools that you bring, and majority of the time that's in the spring, especially here in Colorado when we have the stability to get up high in the bigger mountains, that um, they're all giving you added protection. And you want these pointy things because you're dealing in the spring with more snow that has gone through the melt freeze cycle, right? So in the morning, we're climbing up icier snow to get to the top of the mountain as it gets warmer in the day and the snow softens up. We call it corn snow. That's when the top three to five inches of snow gets soft enough to ski where early in the morning, it was more ice, hard packed snow. So you get that corn snow and now we're skiing bigger, more demanding lines off of the top of peaks, right? So you're, I would say you're getting up higher, you're adding a little more exposure 
and you're skiing the steeper lines. I use the word couloir uh, before, and what a couloir is is usually like a steep, walled-out line uh, that has uh, a, a much higher level of commitment to be in because once you're in it, you're in it, right? So you need to feel really good about the stability in the snow, and we usually get much better stability uh, it during the spring. Um, and that's when we ski the bigger objectives, at least here in Colorado. So the crampons, the ski crampons are basically the monster truck version of skins, right? Yeah. So what a ski you, so when you're utilizing your ski crampons, which they also make ski crampons for split boards too, they hook on underneath your binding on most sets. And they're just these metal points that, um, are going to allow you while you're skinning up, you're still going to have your skins on that are giving you that traction on the uphill, but you're skinning up steeper, slicker snow. And if it gets too slick, you can throw on ski crampons and they go underneath your boots. So every time you take a step forward, then those metal spikes dig into the snow and that's going to give you more grip so that you don't slip out. That's when you would use ski crampons. And we usually just use those in the spring when the snow is pretty slick from the melt freeze process. Go forward in time into the, the sort of whitewater portion of your year. Right. So uh, I've, I've just been working pretty hard right now on kind of spring and summer plans. Right. So I just ski guided all day and then I started doing some planning and marketing, right? So uh, I do a lot of whitewater stuff, especially in the spring when the water's running here in Colorado. And I teach a lot of kayaking. I still raft guide a little bit, not as much as I did when I was younger. Uh, but I teach a lot of swift water rescue courses. And uh, we do kayak instructor courses. And usually in the spring when people want to get certified so they can go work for other kayak schools. And then also uh, start to get, you know, get the bike tuned up for mountain biking season. And I was just, we've kind of had crazy weather. It was warmer here. We've got snow here in Crested Butte. But if you drive an hour and a half or two hours to various places, they've had really dry trails. So I went mountain biking last week. Uh, And then starting to plan all the trips uh, for the summer and getting all that gear. You know, I would say my life is very gear intensive. You know, when people are like, well, what do you spend your money on? And I'm like, well, it's on skis, bikes, boats, climbing gear. Uh, I don't really buy a big TV often, but that's the equipment I need for work. And the nice thing is I also use it for my own leisure. Yeah. So it's, it's work and play expenses. Exactly. When you're Doing the Swiftwater Rescue course, is that a similar structure to the, the Abbey classes? Is it sort of a day out, you know, back to town, day out? There's a similar relationship in both of those in that, you know, when you're paddling down the river, whether you're in a raft, a kayak, a stand-up paddleboard, a whitewater canoe, even if you're just extreme tubing, uh, that you know, you're in a swift water environment, right? When you're on a a river that has some white water. And what we teach in a swift water rescue course is how to deal with that situation when it goes wrong, right? So with the AVI education course, we're teaching a lot of how to analyze and understand snow and how to make decision making and assessing risk and whether it's appropriate to put yourself in avalanche terrain or not that day in a, I would say a swift water rescue course. I touch on that. I go into the aspects of hydrology and what moving water does and how the various features on the river, uh, some are friendly and some are unfriendly. And then, and then we go through all these various strategies of how to deal with something when it goes wrong, um, how to, be an effective rescuer and we give all these tools and resources to people in a course and, and, and then practice that. And we do the structure that I do for a 16 hour swift water course, which is over two days 
is we, the AM, I usually do skill sets is we're teaching people various skills. And then the afternoon is the application that we're on the water and we're practicing and we're doing live bait, right? So live bait would be, uh, you have a swimmer in the river that needs your assistance and you've got a rescue life jacket on and you hook a rope to yourself and you're going to jump out and you're physically going to go grab that person because they've taken a big swim uh, and you're going to go out. Uh, Then we also do a variety of extraction. So extracting people from the water of, you know, helping save someone if they're swimming or if they're pinned, say on a strainer, which is a large amount of Uh, usually wood or something that's built up if someone got pinned on that. I'm also extraction if people's gear, say you swam out of your kayak or you off your sup and now it's pinned up on that strainer. You know, we we go through various methods of how to unpin those objects from the potential thing that they're stuck on. You do the swift water rescue classes, you whitewater guide climbing, alpine climbing, hiking, backpacking, mountain biking. Is that more of a, you know, I did this, this season, that, the season, or are you doing this, you know, throughout and how do, how do you kind of uh, make your schedule? Well, I would say, especially, you know, the summer, since there's so much more variety in what I'm doing is kind of go with the seasons for me. Here in Colorado, spring runoff starts happening uh, end of April, May, June, July, August. We're dealing with white water. We have high water traditionally in June. Uh, here in Colorado, last year we had a warm spring, so things we think peaked at the end of May. So I would say I'm more whitewater focused early in the summer doing a lot of that stuff. A lot of people want to prepare. That's when I teach more swift water rescue courses and kayak instructor courses is in the spring. Then people are out there recreating and working. And then, then as the snow melts and the rivers start to go down, uh, then the trails open up. So I'm mountain biking and start climbing and, and then as the end tail end of the summer comes, then I'm focusing for me, I'm focusing more on the rock climbing and the mountain biking. I'm doing more of that work where other people that are guiding that focus a little bit more, say on Alpine climbing, when I'm doing whitewater stuff, people are out Alpine climbing, climbing snow routes up peaks. And I do a little bit of that, um, but I enjoy the river a lot. So I focus a lot of work for me in the spring on the whitewater stuff. So your year is filled with getting paid to take people on these awesome adventures, doing all this incredible stuff, teaching them how to be safer as they're doing it. Take me back to sort of the first step to getting to this point with this, this life you've cultivated. Right. So for me, when I was younger, I, you know, as we all are, we're trying to figure out what we want to do, right? And a very prolific moment in my life, I was up in New Hampshire visiting my aunt and uncle and, and their son, my cousin, who is really close to me, he's more like a brother. He was working at a ski area up in New Hampshire. And then in the summer, he worked at a camp and did all these outdoor activities with all the campers and everything. And he was starting his career in recreation. And he now is the recreational director in Concord, New Hampshire. And, you know, he's, I always joke around with him. He's more of a politician now because he's dealing, you know, he's making big things happen and he has hundreds of people working for him for the whole County providing all this recreation. So I first got introduced to that. And when I was in high school, I was like, okay, I think I want to do something in recreation. And I was very sports focused. I grew up in New York. I was playing lacrosse like most New Yorkers do. And I was thinking, hey, I'm going to do something in sports. So I looked at getting a rec degree. So I went to East Carolina University, which is on the eastern part of North Carolina. And uh, and was getting... Are they the the pirates? 
They are the pirates. Yes. Most people don't even know. I've even had people ask me like, Hey, where's Eastern Carolina? Like, I thought we just said North and South. I was like, you need to study geography a little more. There's home. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Unhealthy, uh, basketball obsession will give me the note. Nice. Yeah. So I think we all said a good football team. Uh, but there I was getting my management of recreation and business degree. And I got introduced to uh, our outdoor program. And I had already started mountain biking and skiing when I was younger. I joined the Boy Scouts and my parents weren't outdoorsy at all. Right. I found all this stuff on my own when I was at the university, I started, I had to do some volunteer work for my major and I did it at the outdoor program. And that's when I got introduced to rock climbing and whitewater kayaking. And then I eventually jumped, you know, did some trips, got some more experience, eventually got a job there. And that's when I was like, I want to work in the outdoors. Right. And I actually was playing club lacrosse at the university and I stopped going to a bunch of the games and which a bunch of my teammates were all pissed off at me. And I was like, you know, lacrosse isn't going to provide me a livelihood that I could work with. But if I build my skills, maybe I can do something in the outdoors. And that was kind of when I shifted to working in the outdoors. And, and then I moved out to Colorado and did an internship and raft guided and got a bunch of other outdoor experience and then started working a variety of outdoor jobs and started taking certification courses and you know and then I've had some full-time jobs and was an out the outdoor rec director of a program and doing a bunch of that and then I finally kind of got sick of the full-time job of you know, it provided a lot of benefits, but I was like, I wanted to have a little more freedom and guiding and instructing full-time provided me with that freedom. And I built up enough of certifications and experience that I was able to work for a variety of guide services and provide some of my own courses. What was the first indication that you could go that outdoor route and have a lifestyle where that was your work that I'm, I'm guessing it happened like right before that discussion with your lacrosse teammates? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, we all are, if, if you're trying to continue your education or your experience, trying to figure out what you want to do, I just, I just knew I, I wanted to do something I enjoyed. My uh, growing up in New York, my mom, what she, she managed low-income housing on Long Island and in Queens. And when I was 16, she got me a job that did landscaping and maintenance. And I, I rode my sister's 10 speed two towns over to the projects and was making nine something an hour, way more than my friends that worked at the beach, two towns, the other direction. They were making, you know, $5 an hour. Um, I, you can tell I'm a little older with the minimum wage uh, I'm telling you, <laughs> but the, uh, and that was a very prolific experience. And I, I worked there a few summers and during college, I went back and I uh, worked there in the winter and, you know, I could have stayed and done things there, but I, I, I cherish those experiences, especially getting to work with a variety of different cultures and ethnicities. And, and I really, value that, but I also didn't want to do that the rest of my life and realized that enjoying what I did was way more important than the money that I was, would make doing something I didn't enjoy. Right. And, you know, we all, we all have to work, right. That's a, the essence of life that we all need to buy the things we want to pay the rent or the mortgage that we have to put food on the table but we spend a large percentage of our life and our weeks and years working. And that's when I was just like, God, like, you know what? I, I want to enjoy going to work. And what I do, it's still work. I still go through elements that I still have to get out of bed every day. And I still have to be professional uh, in what I do. And sometimes I put in more hours than I get paid for. But in the end of it, I 
am enjoying what I do. I'm providing experiences. I'm adding to people's enjoyment. And I love so much when I'm out and about in my community and I see someone and they're like, oh yeah, you taught my AVI course or Hey, I want to take that swift water course. You know, I'm really getting into the river or, Hey, can we set up a private session to do this climbing class? It just brings me a lot of satisfaction. It also provides me with the livelihood and overall it makes me happy. You know, I've realized I'm never going to be, you know, a millionaire going to be rich, but as I'm getting older, I realize that's not what's bringing me happiness either. It's, it's what I'm getting out of my life and how I'm also impacting the people I'm associated with throughout my life. So you're taking some high schoolers out tomorrow. Let's say one of them kind of stops you and you get a minute and they say, you know, I kind of want to go the direction that you did um, just starting out. What would, what would your advice to them be? Well, you know, a lot of the things that I do are skill-based and you know, if, if you're going to hire someone to instruct you, whether it's at tennis or skiing or whitewater kayaking, you've got to be good at that activity, right? You, you have to work towards mastering that activity. So if someone, if one of my high school students tomorrow is like, God, I love skiing. I would love to be a backcountry ski guide. I would be like, well, you need to get experience, work on those skills, right? And, and get out in the backcountry to keep building those skills so that you can get enough qualifications to start taking your various courses and get certified so that you have the credibility for people to want to hire you and pay you to extract experience and knowledge from you, right? So, you know, and, and it's kind of easy if the person's enjoying the activity that they're doing. It's like, Hey, you know what you need to do is go ski more and get better at skiing and get more experience in the area of that, uh, discipline that you want. So me being uh, new, newish to Colorado, I've got the mountain bike now I've got the skis, but I haven't done too much of either. What are before the summer? What are, what are three things I definitely need to do? As somebody who lives in Colorado and does all this stuff, what, what do I got to do as, as a rookie? As a rookie, you need to get in shape, right? So years ago, as I've had various interns work for me for programs, and I came up with this whole fitness philosophy, right? So I decided that there's four kinds of shape, right? There, first one is there's college shape because every college kid thinks they're in shape, but they're just not in shape. They just have good metabolism right? Then there's in shape. These are people that recreate, walk, maybe go to the gym, um, do activities, maybe jog, right? So that they're in shape, they're fit people that value activity. Then, then I would say that there's mountain state shape after that. So you're now in Colorado, right? You're at a higher element than if you were living in a state that didn't have mountains in it, right? Um, it takes more energy to get up mountains, whether you're on a bike, skis, running, right? So there's mountain town shape and, or then that's mountain state shape. And the final shape is there's mountain town shape, right? So I'm living in this mountain town and a lot of majority of people live in these mountain towns is for their access to recreation because they want to ride their bike. They want to go skiing. They want to go trail running, rock climbing, whatever it is that uh, there's this higher level of fitness. And I always joke around in Crested Butte, no matter how hard you train, you can't keep up with the moms and the 50 year olds in this town because everybody's, you know, fitness oriented and constantly working out. So Joey, the first thing you need to do is get yourself a mountain town shape so you can keep up with your friends. I would say half the time I'm training, not just for my own fitness, is just so I can hang out with my friends, right? Got it, yep. <laughs> and, and then is just what I would tell that same high school student is to go do the activity. You know, if you want to get better at something, you've got to go do it. And something that I always see when people sign up for an instructional-based 
course, especially as an adult, you know, it's a little harder to learn something as an adult, but that it can still happen. Uh, but you also, you know, I see the frustration on people and they're like, you know, I was an athlete. I played sports and I did this. And I said, well, let's put this in perspective that when you were playing that high school sport, what did you have? You had a coach also known as an instructor, someone that's helping you along with these skills. And then you practice those skills five, six days a week, right? When you went to, you know, that football practice, that tennis practice, whatever it was, you, you practice that skill over and over again, right? So you got that mountain bike, you got to go out on the trails, um, but also set yourself up for success that if you're starting one of these, these activities is don't get overwhelmed because that's when you're going to get frustrated and potentially hurt, you know, kind of work up to it. You know, when you're first learning to ski or snowboard at a ski area, you start out on the green slopes, you work up to the blue slopes, you know, the intermediate, then the advanced black and, and potentially the double black, the extreme terrain, you know, work yourself up to it. Yeah. It's funny you use that, that phrase in particular, I'm an athlete. I've definitely used that one quite a few times when it's like my first time out doing something or, you know, I'm new to it and they're the people I'm with are like, Oh, let's do this like harder one or a harder route. I'm like, yep, let's do it. I'm an athlete. I can do it. <laughs> right. And we all say that because we, you know, we've, we've worked hard and had success and, you know, as human beings and I would, and also in this day and age, you know, we want things to be easy for us. Like we, we spend the money on the nice bike or something uh, or the really nice equipment. And we're like, God, this should be easier than it is. Well, sometimes it's not right. And you got to put the time and energy into building the skills and the fitness to have success at these outdoor sports. Yep. I've found, I'm finding that out particularly with uh, mountain biking. So I know what you're, what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I just got a skateboard again. Uh, my girlfriend and I uh, just started skateboarding and I'm kind of deathly afraid uh, of it. But I skated when I was younger, was not that good at it. And now I'm like, gosh, I'm, you know, much older than when I skated when I was 12 years old. And I'm like, gosh, like I'm, I'm enjoying the challenge of it, um, but also having that frustration and especially skateboarding, you know, is, is a sport where you have a higher chance of getting hurt. And we went to uh, the skate shop in Salida, which has ramps and everything. We were there and, you know, and fully padded out, which I wasn't when I was 12 years old trying to skate. Now I got helmet, elbow pads and knee pads and trying to learn how to drop into a ramp and just eating it and still haven't had success where my girlfriend has and she's, she's ripping it up. Uh, and it's inspiring to be challenged again. And I, I, that's something that I love. And it makes me, especially as an instructor, educator, and um, guide, to feel that humility again of being like, oh, I suck at something again. And I've got to work hard at it if I want to be good at it. And, and for me, it's something I enjoy. Just like when I learned how to surf, which again, I still am not a good surfer, um, but I want to do it again. What is a lesson you learned growing up in New York that you use now in your work? Hmm. That's a, that's a tough question, Joey. Uh, I would say uh, resilience is that, you know, if, if you've ever met a New Yorker, you know, they're, they're up front. They, they, don't, they don't hold anything. They don't bullshit around, right? Uh, and they, they tell you how it is. And, and that's something that I still hold. I've lost my New York accent. I don't go to parties anymore. Uh, I just go to a party. And, but it's that resilience of, of when I see something that I want, I go for it. You know, and that can be an endeavor, a, a trip, a relationship, a friendship. Um, I put value and time into it, and I'm resilient to have success in any component of that. And I don't, I don't give up on my friends. 
I don't give up on getting better at the activities that I want. And, you know, and I, and I think for me, that's what's brought a lot of success is that, you know, we all have ups and downs in our life and we all have challenges, but I think I embrace those challenges and try to work, work past past those challenges. Like I, I went back to grad school when I was 40 years old and uh, it was something I always wanted to do was get my master's and I got an education and, and it was freaking hard. And like I had to relearn how to do so much from that long period of time from doing my undergrad to my master's, but I did it. And and it, I had different challenges than I'd had in a long time. And, uh, but I, I was, when it was all done and I finished my thesis and defended and, and finally got that piece of paper, it was just this success that I had. And, um, and I definitely was beating my head against a computer many a times learning how to academically write again. <laughs> But, uh, but it was something that I wanted to accomplish and, you know, and, um, it's good to be challenged again. I think it, it gives you that fulfillment too, just like learning how to mountain bike or learning how to backcountry ski. Is there a question that I didn't ask that you would like me to? I don't know. I think you did a pretty darn good job. Well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would say one thing that I think about a lot that I, I would say a lot of people have is we, we look back at our lives and we always say like, oh, what if I had done this? What if I had done that? And, you know, I look at it and I'm like, oh, maybe if I would have gotten in some of these activities earlier on in my life, I'd be better at them. Or if I would have been more focused at this time in my life, maybe I would have been farther along in my career. But I also have come to the conclusion is like, I really like where I'm at and I really like who I am as, as a person and where I'm at. And yes, I'm still striving to be better at everything that I'm doing, but all those, those experiences and the chapters is what I always call the various things I've done in my life have contributed to who I am and where I'm at now. And and I can't change the past. So I might as well live in the now and focus on developing myself now and, and try to propel myself for the future. Well, Dave, thanks so much for uh, giving me some of your time and telling your story. Well, thanks, Joey. Thanks for having me on your podcast. And hopefully some people will enjoy listening. Yeah, That's it. That's the episode. The seasonals are Kelly Mogg, Ryan Deininger, me, Joey Ravinsky. The theme song by Ryan Deininger, Joe Williams, Louis Leva, Chappie, Thomas Hamilton. Follow us on Instagram at the seasonals underscore. Like us on Facebook. Listen to our next episode. That's it. We're out. Yeah.